Welcome to Interrevolutionary Radio. We're so glad to have you today. The hosts today are Chris Reese as your host, and I'm Helen Hillix as your co-host. And today we have Alden Wicker, and we're so excited about this show. The title is Conscious Consumerism. Is this a thing, or is this an urban legend? It feels good to recycle, buy local, and verify that our clothing brand has sustainable practices. But are we really making a difference? What could have a larger impact on consciousness? What can we actually do that will impact the economy and the environment in a positive way, supporting sustainability? Alden Wicker, a sustainable lifestyle expert, provides an informed and compassionate perspective, and she urges us to take more action. Listen in. Join the inner revolution where we question everything and are often surprised and inspired with the outcome. Chris, did you have some inner revolutionary news today? Thank you so much, Helen, for the introduction. And um, I don't have any inner revolutionary news items, but I would like to start off by talking a little bit about my first reaction when I found work um, of Alden's. And I would just like to read a quote for you. This is from a blog that Alden had published in Quartz on March 1st, 2017. And this is a little piece from it. Choosing fashion made from hemp or grilling the waiter about how your fish was caught is no substitute for systemic change. And when I read that, it was like someone put a knife in my gut because here I am thinking I've been doing all the right things and I'm living a conscious life and I, you know, badger my husband to live a conscious life too and, you know, on and on and on. And I feel a little bit smug about it um, as well. And when I read Alden's blog, it really took me by surprise because She said out loud what I had been thinking for quite a while, which is if we're not taking some kind of action where we're trying to influence what's happening on the political front, we're really not doing very much. And Alden's going to go into more detail about it. Um, But before Alden starts, I'd like to share about why we see this as an interrevolutionary message. The interrevolution is about oneness and From our perspective, when we talk about oneness, we go way beyond just saying, I am my brother's keeper or I am my sister's keeper. We actually say, I am my brother and I am my sister. So if someone is suffering, I feel it. And I may not necessarily be responsible for their suffering. However, the idea is I can't um, live a conscious life in isolation that I'm part of a collective, and it's only when there's going to be a significant change um, with a number of people and corporations taking different actions that we're going to really see a different economy and a different environment. The next tenet of the inner revolution is accountability. And what I love about the inner revolutionary perspective on accountability is we take responsibility for our actions We make amends where we can and we move on and we don't go into shame. You know, we don't feel bad about ourselves because we haven't been able to live a perfect life or live as consciously as we'd like to. And yet we still acknowledge where we're doing harm and we, you know, we take action where we can to shift our energy. 
you know, you may have recently bought a hybrid car and um, you're getting 38 miles per gallon and you're proud of it. And then a new model comes out and it's getting 47, you know, and what do you do? Do you kick yourself? You know, no, we don't kick ourselves. You know, we're all, we're all in this together and we're, you know, hopefully making forward movement. So we're accountable, to, we're accountable to do our part, but we don't have to do it when it would harm ourselves or be irrational about it. And then lastly, we believe in mutual support. And that's a really important reason why we do Interrevolutionary Radio, because we want to bring you all stories and hear what other people are doing around the globe to help inspire us, you know, to answer questions we might have and to help us shift our perspective so that we can, again, move forward and try to live in a way that's more conscious. Helen, I'd love to hear your thoughts about that before we continue with, um, with our guest today. Well, I think you've pretty much covered what I would say. Um, I, I really am excited to hear what Alden's process has been because just as you were saying, all of us, I think, walk around feeling a bit self-righteous about recycling and driving electric cars and you know, buying used clothing and so forth. Uh, and I think that it's going to be a shock to some people what Alden has to say and what we have discovered. And I'd like to dive right in and hear it. Okay, great. Thank you. Well, Alden, could you start by giving us your, you know, your perspective? And I think it's really interesting for our listeners to know that you came from a finance background before you got into the world of conscious consumerism and sustainable living. Yeah. So, um, well, actually, I uh, used to write about personal finance. So I'm extremely conscious of um, of people's socioeconomic situations and the sorts of things that um, prevent them from getting to their personal goals, much less goals that take into account um, your outer circle or your far circle of people that you don't even know who live across the world or somewhere else, even in the same city that are suffering from, um, some toxic, you know, toxic emissions or, or whatever is going on where they are. Um, so I've always been sort of aware from the beginning, um, of my career as a sustainability blogger at EcoCult that, uh, this lifestyle is not, the conscious lifestyle is not accessible to everyone. And, um, but that was okay because I figured if some people can do it, they should. I mean, you shouldn't not do it because not everyone can do it. You should do what you can, right? Um, but I, but I'm beginning to think that that's actually that it's actually detrimental to the environmental movement, not just because our choices as consumers are extremely limited. We might feel like we have a lot of choices, but in fact, our choices are very narrow because by the time a product gets to us, a lot of decisions have been made without our input or without us knowing what they are or understanding what they are because uh, they have to do with chemistry, uh, supply chain dynamics, um, socioeconomic, socio-political dynamics. So it's really hard for you to make a choice that's better, much less good for the environment. There are very few consumer choices that are good for the environment, especially when it involves buying products. Um, 
it, and even if it comes to experiences because, you know, travel is carbon intensive. So our, our choices as consumers are actually quite, quite limited. And I was finding that in four years of blogging about sustainability, um, my self-righteousness sort of faded away because I was like, I'm failing every day. The more you know about the world, the less you are, the less you realize that you're doing to help it because it's sort of like there was a moment where my sister, there was a time when my sister emailed me and she was like, oh my God, slave, modern slavery is a thing. Like, look at this government list of things that involve slavery. And I mean, it was just hundreds of items long from countries all over the world. And that was sort of like, oh, and she, and she said, well, uh, we, maybe we can just avoid things that are made with slavery. And I said, are you going to carry this list around with you wherever you go? I mean, and that's just one thing um, out of hundreds of considerations that a conscious consumer can make. So um, I'm, I'm rambling a little bit, but that, that's in a summary of sort of what I've come to conclude is that we, we have less power as consumers than we think we do. Even though we think we have, it feels like we have a lot of power because we're making decisions every day. Um, they're tangible, but it's really not that powerful. I, I'd like to say something here, if that's okay, Chris. Um, you bring up such an important point, which I don't want to forget to uh, remind us all of an event that we're having May 6th, because this so relates to exactly that event and No More Divide and Conquer is the name of the event and it's talking about how economic inequality underlies all of these important issues and you're mm-hmm. beginning to talk about that Alden you know in your discussion now about how poor people have even fewer uh, choices than we middle class or upper class people do um, and yet even we have very few choices because for instance with cars you know we could have cars that had fantastic mileage but pickup trucks and SUVs are by far the highest selling vehicles in the country still which I, I just you know I'm just appalled I just can't believe that I mean if you have to have one for your work that's one thing but if you don't have to it's like how how can you justify that in your mind getting you know 15 or 20 miles per gallon you know mm-hmm. it's it's just hard to imagine when we could be getting you know my volt gets 75 miles per gallon um but but they've made the volt cost $35,000 you know so it's just mm-hmm. it's economics is, is makes the consumer have so few choices and then there is the whole economic system of capitalism where the the majority of people are at the bottom or in the middle and you know, just very few people have the actual choices because they have all the money so i i just wanted to bring that up so we can weave that through the conversation because I think that's really at the heart of what you're blogging about now, isn't it, Alden? Yeah, absolutely. And, you know, I was really thinking about this issue yesterday because, um, so I live in Williamsburg, Brooklyn, which is sort of um, a hot spot for gentrification. Um, where I am is on the south side of Williamsburg, and it's a it's an area that's sort of held off against gentrification somewhat. Um, it's a Puerto Rican-Dominican neighborhood, um, and uh, my fiance, who's Venezuelan, last year found this um, great little place, uh, Latin place that serves really cheap 
good Latin food. Um, it's not organic. You know, they, they sell a lot of soda. Um, it's a lot of meat, but it's also like sort of, it's very home cooked and whole, like wholesome food. You know, it's got, um, you know, rice and beans and plantains and other root vegetables. And, um, it's just, it's, it's healthy, you know, but it's not organic. And so, and you know, they take out containers and stuff and it's not fancy. And up until I had this mind shift, um, he would go and I'd be like, no, I don't, I don't want to go. It's not, it's not organic. Cause I would feel guilty <laughs> for buying food right. from this place. That's not organic. And right. yet this place, we went there yesterday this place is a vibrant part of the community, an incredibly important part of the community. You know, you have all these people coming in who's who've lived here for probably 30 years and got the local UPS guy. They're coming in, they're getting affordable, wholesome food, you know, and if that place were to be, if that place were to be pushed out by gentrification and replaced with another organic smoothie shop, I think that would be a huge loss for this community. I mean, we need that sort of thing here. And so instead of turning my nose up at that and saying, mm, not organic, right? And not going there. I'd rather eat there now and support what they do have going on, which is providing affordable food to, for people. Uh, and think about the whole system and learning about the farm bill and how we incentivize unhealthy eating and think about how we can make it so that even if you go to a place like this Latin little Latin takeout restaurant, you're still going to be able to get chicken that's not kept in cages, right? That, that is, um, you can get food that's grown without pesticides. Like that would be the world that I want to live in. Not that uh, the rich people go over here to the organic smoothie shop and the poor people go over here to the Latin American place and the two never mix. And eventually the Latin American place gets pushed out by people like me who throw money at the organic smoothie shops. I think that, you know, you're, you're again bringing up so many really important points. And um, where Helen and I live in in Southern California, the San Diego area, you know, there's a lot of local um, little Mexican restaurants and it's exactly the same. I mean, I can just think of one down the street from me and it's so hard, you know, for me, because I have some health problems, I get very anxious when I'm eating in a restaurant like that. It not because I snub my nose because the food isn't organic. It's because I worry so much about the pesticides and the GMO. Mm-hmm. So, so, but I happen to be able to afford to buy organic food and, you know, I have a car and I can drive to a great market that um, has a lot of, a lot of options for me to choose from as far as um, a range of products, you know, so it, it's because of my comfortable um, income that I'm able to do that. And I like what you said about I like what you said about paying attention to the farm bill and it would be great to live in a world where we weren't using pesticides and um, it goes it, it goes to a much bigger conversation that Helen alluded to, which is when we have so much money held in the hands of a relatively very small number of people and we have huge agribusiness running our um you know, the major part of our food production. And then we have smaller 
um, farmers and ranchers trying to compete, you know, the whole system is is challenging um, to make a living in. And I think that's something that we could talk about like extensively. But but before we get too far down that road, I'd love to hear from you, Alden, some of your ideas about what we can do. You know, you talked about in one of your blogs about paying attention to bills and um, paying attention to what your Congress people and your senators and such are um, voting on. And if you have any specifics in that realm that you could share with us, I'd love to hear it because I'd love to have the listeners be able to leave the show with some um you know, action items, because I'm sure that throughout the course of this show, we're going to digress into the things that that are wrong. But I'd also love to have some action that people can take. Sure. Well, um, you know, what you mentioned is great. So there's some easy ways to do it. um, And there's some organizations that are working to amplify the voice of people who care about these issues. So daily action is a text message service where they text you every day with one thing you can do, one person you can call, one organization you can call, um, you know, where you can donate to. Um, and every day they have something different uh, that you can do. So today was, let's see, what was today? Call Trump's Trump property and politely send a message that their boss needs to release his returns. Um before that, it was tell your rep to vote no on HR 634, which would eliminate the Election Assistance Commission. Um, so every day, that's, so that's a really easy way to sort of keep up with what's going on. And they give you a number to call, and then it passes you through to wherever you need to go. Um, another organization is called Knock Every Door, or Knock on Every Door. And they're sort of uh, putting together, like, feet on the ground uh, groups of people that can go to swing districts and knock on every door and talk to people about the issues and get them activated. Uh, they've do- they've been doing some work in uh, that Georgia district that's sort of up for grabs today. Um, let's see what else. Uh, those are two organizations that are very that make getting political easy. Um, I would also say that you I mean, everyone really should be donating. Everyone, I mean, if you can afford to be a conscious consumer, you can certainly afford to tithe, to have a monthly a, a monthly donation set up to um, pick three organizations that are working on something that you really care about. Um, so I have three monthly donations going, and, and they'll call me every once in a while, ask me to ramp up my donation, and I will, because, you know, like, hopefully, luckily my income's starting to go up, so I'm trying to keep up with that. Um and contributing regularly is actually also great for them because then they can plan ahead and know what they're working with. Um, and those organizations are really, really important because, you know, you can say that you really care about these issues, but the people who are really working on them need money to, to get the work done. So, for example, if you think that, you know, we should have clean water, Riverkeeper is one that's putting it like that is actively putting in legal action um, to make sure that our our water sources are clean. Um, a lot of the progress that we've seen made on environmental issues is really just due to legal action, to forcing the government to reckon with their role um, and their responsibilities, forcing companies to reckon with their role and responsibilities. Um, and I think that they actually make a, a huge difference as opposed to thinking that if we 
by consciously companies will sort of take notice and, and change for the better. Yeah, I love what you're saying about that, Alden. That is so, so much a slap in the face of reality. It's like, you know, no, they're not going to do it if you if you don't take action and force them to do it. And mm-hmm. I, I don't know how successful it's ever been. I don't know if we've ever gotten a real wave of people to uh, force change. I remember back, I don't remember even when it was, in the 80s maybe when where everybody was uh, boycotting grapes or something like that, you know, trying to help the uh, Mexican immigrant workers to get some sort of employee rights. Um, but it's people have been doing this for a long time, trying mm-hmm. to change the system. And the only time I've ever heard things change is when they are forced to do so by legal action. And that's yeah. sad, but true. There is one area in which things have gotten better because of consumer choice, but it's not because they care about the environment. It's because they care about their health, and that's in red meat consumption. Um, beef is a huge contributor to climate change. Um, it uses a lot of res- a lot of farmland resources, and it also uh, contributes to uh, contributes methane to the climate. Um, and people are eating a lot less red meat, but it's not because they care about the environment. It's because uh, it's become more and more clear that beef is really, really bad for your health. And it's also more expensive. So I think it was an easy switch for a lot of people. Mm-hmm. I agree. Um, Alden, I found in one of your blogs a reference to the United Nations Environmental um, Environmental Program and the report that they put out in 2016. And I know that you studied this report, and it's something that you've referred to at different times in speeches that you've given. I just would like to read a little bit from here. It says, a sustainable lifestyle minimizes ecological impacts while enabling a flourishing life for individuals, households, communities, and beyond. It is the product of individual and collective decisions about aspirations and about satisfying needs and adopting practices, which are in turn conditioned, facilitated, and constrained by societal norms, political institutions, public policies, infrastructures, markets, and culture. And in the beginning of the report, they, they're talking about how difficult it is in um, advanced countries to wean ourselves off of the unsustainable practice of mass consumption and how it drives people on all levels, you know, in our country and how urban, um, urban youth and um, people in countries that can't afford it begin to think that this is the standard that you should seek. And I'd like to speak a little bit about the inner revolution, you know, because you talked about donating to nonprofits that are that are taking action and doing things in the community and we're a nonprofit and we you know we of course support the good work of many many other nonprofits and this is not a plug for um, donating money to our nonprofit but if anyone would like to we'd welcome it um, but what we're seeing is that there's there's good work being done there's a lot of great advocacy being done there are people who are very, passionate and who are working hard and we believe that underneath all of it there is the potential for us to get out of our egos 
with a lot of support to really shift out of being dominated by our egos and shift more into the consciousness of feeling our impact on each other. And I'm just noticing in the conversation how the three of us are, um, we have opinions and we have judgments about um, some of the things that we're discussing. And in the inner revolution, we've been trained and, and continue to be trained by our founder, Beth Green, who's, who's trying to help us get really neutral and really look at our judgments and our opinions and see if we can move beyond them to find a way to have discourse with people that may not share our ideas. And just recently, we had an event called Revolutionizing the Abortion Conversation, a conversation whose time has come. And it was it was unbelievably mind-blowing, um, informative about how, how hard it can be to have a conversation about a difficult subject, even with people that you're close to and that you think you know very well. So this is one of the things that we're striving for, is to encourage people to have dialogue with others who they quote-unquote um, may not agree with and think that are on the other side of the fence. And I wondered, Alden, if you've had any experience doing that. You know, do you have any successes or any, you know, fabulous flops you want to share with us and any lessons learned? Because we know for a movement like this to take hold and to have um, success, we have to cross over political and ideological barriers to to be able to create um, forward movement. Yeah, um, you know, I wouldn't, I wouldn't. I'm going to tell you a story and I wouldn't say it's a success because I don't know how it ended. But um, I, after I gave my last radio interview on this subject, I had um, a lot of praise, but also I had a, somebody, a rancher, um, uh, left a comment on my blog saying, uh, in essence, you city folk think you can come in here and tell us, you know, not to drive our trucks and, um, and that, you know, beef is bad. And, you know, we, we raise our, we raise our cows on beef and we have a family farm. And, um, have you ever even been on a family farm? You don't know what you're talking about. And, you know, I have been on a family farm. My, um, aunt, uncle in North, my great aunt, uncle in North Carolina had, um, had a, a, a beef farm and I would hang out there all the time. And so I responded and I told him that, you know, yes, I have been on a beef farm and I understand why he is offended that I made the broad generalization that, um, that, you know, beef is bad for the environment and it's bad for your health and everything. But, um, you know, it's hard to have these conversations, especially as someone who, who sort of tries to keep herself well informed because everything comes with a caveat. Everything comes with, uh, except in this situation, and it applies to this guy too. I mean, I told him, I said, in my comment back to him, and he didn't respond, unfortunately, but I said, I have been on a beef farm. I have total respect for what you do. Most of the beef produced in the United States today is not produced the way you produce it, which sounds amazing, right? And I support you. I think that the farm bill should support family farmers like you who are raising their cattle on on you know, open pasture, because I know that, you know, um, hooved animals actually can help sequester carbon if they're raised in a a conscious way, 
um, in regenerative farming techniques. Um, I don't know a lot about it, but I know that that's true. And so I'm on your side. And I don't think you shouldn't have a truck because it's necessary for your life, for what you're doing for your job. What I have a problem with is I have a problem with people who live in the suburbs driving SUVs because they don't need them. They're uh, they're expensive. They contribute to climate change. They're just they just don't they don't benefit anyone. But I am on his side, and so I think that you know he heard me as an environmental type and got angry and projected a lot of things on me that weren't necessarily true. But the the thing is, in order to have these conversations, you have to be prepared to see that there are always exceptions to every rule, and there's always there's always ways to do it. There's the broad picture of right and wrong or, or good for the environment and bad for the environment. But within those, there's a whole rainbow of different perspectives and shades and pockets of good and good in the bad and bad in the good. I, you know, yeah. I, oh, I, I was oh. just going to say, Chris, that I love what you said about, you know, staying neutral and that we're expressing opinions. And I think it's really a tricky situation in some ways because we do follow the scientific facts. And I don't know if you would call that an opinion, you know, that for instance, beef is bad for us and bad for the environment. Um, But even if it's a scientific fact and you have, and someone has an opposing view, we still have to relate to them. And that's what I, it sounds like, you did relate to that rancher and and that's that's a great thing and that's what we're trying to do is relate to people as people and realize that we all have common if not pretty much exactly the same needs we need love we need validation we need safe drinking water and safe food to eat you know we need the earth to be well enough to sustain us We need education for our kids. I mean, I think almost everybody would agree to all those things. So if we remember that, then we can find our way forward, just as you were trying to do with that farmer. Mm -hmm. Yeah, and I think, you know, whatever whatever industry we're talking about, whether it's cattle ranching, and and my family actually has a working cattle ranch in Arizona, um, whether it's cattle ranching or... Um, what happened to Detroit, you know, with the auto industry and manufacturing in earlier decades, or whether or not we should continue to mine coal. You know, these are people whose livelihoods are being challenged and whose whole way of life feels like it's being pulled out from under them. And in fact, it may be pulled out from under them if we make these changes. And you know, speaking about why does someone who live in the city need to drive a truck? You know, from the inner revolutions perspective, you know, there's clearly the science, of course, that it's polluting. And we would seek to say, I wonder why they need to drive a truck. Like, you know, and it comes back to the ego. Why why do I need to buy a truck? Or, you know, me, I'm in um, the insurance industry and middle management. Why do I feel like I need to keep buying new outfits, you know, to help us um, unlock some of those mysteries um, of how our ego drives us to really then have some real sustainable change. Because when we begin to take on our ego and we begin to admit how much we're driven 
um, by our own fears or our own perception of what will make us feel secure in the world, then we can begin to change on a number of fronts. You know, not only not only are we going to look at the car we're driving, we might look at um, why we're pushing our children into doing so many sports activities or, you know, why we're shopping so much or whatever the case may be. I'm, I'm sure Helen may want to comment on this too. Helen's um, a marriage and family counselor. Well, I, I, I'm glad you brought that into the conversation. Um, I think it's a, an incredibly important part of the shift that's going to need to happen if we're going to take, if we're going to make a big shift ever, we have to uh, understand what's underlying the positions that people are taking. We can't just mandate what's going to, we can't mandate higher consciousness we have to evolve into it. And as we all know, evolution is a very messy process. Right. And we also, um, if we're going dis- to we're gonna disrupt whole industries and people's entire livelihoods, you know, we need to be prepared as a society to help them, you know, and we're not there yet. Like our society, especially in the being capitalists, we're not there. We don't, we don't have... Um, support that steps in and says, okay, your whole livelihood, you know, your past five generations of livelihood, um, it's gone now because it's not good for the environment or it's not good for health. And so what's next? You know, you, you, we, we have to be conscious of that. Um, and, uh, if we can, I think we have the opportunity to have more conversation with people that might not necessarily think that we want to engage with them. And I, I, I think more than ever, it's really important for us to say, I don't know. You know, I can say, um, I don't like that. I don't like the fact that there is a lot of pollution. I don't like the fact that people are driving gas guzzling cars. But I can also add to that, I don't know why they aren't making other choices. Does that make sense? Absolutely. It makes sense. And, and again, what you're establishing here is the need in the conversation to ask why this is happening and how we can relate to one another and understand one another in order to make the shift rather than just trying to mandate it or, you know, judge one another, but to always bring in the I wonder why conversation and that's that's what I'm hearing you say and I totally agree Alton yeah I think you know beyond just I think I wonder why conversation is really interesting because um you know you're tackling it from a perspective of what's what's their thought process but um I've also been thinking about that I wonder why in terms of um uh of what incentives there are or the basic infrastructure that allows us to make the right decision or incentivizes us to make the right decision instead of mandating. Um, One thing that I have talked about is, um, you know, when you travel to a a tropical destination in a developing country, whether it's uh, in Southeast Asia or Mexico or um, somewhere else in Latin America, um, there are a lot of locations that are that attract people who are very thoughtful and conscious. Um, 
you know, they, uh, they're into renewable energy. Um, they want to eat organic or vegan. Um, you know, Bali's one place, um, Tulum is another, um, where you can get, you know, artisan made clothing. And so there's all these people there who do a lot of yoga and they want to do the right thing. And so all the consumer choices are in place there for them to, uh, on the surface, make the right choice, right? They can get a nice vegan meal, vegan organic meal, and um, they can support a local artisan with their purchases. But because the infrastructure is not in place to handle uh, handle tourists, um, underneath those conscious, underneath those consumer decisions that they make, there's an environmental disaster. There's no recycling. Um, the plastic is just ending up washing straight into the ocean um you know there's no way to properly handle sewage so the the water is just not clean um and so that's something that also really drove home the point for me this year which was um you can go to these places and you feel like that they're an example of what happens when conscious consumerism is sort of fully realized and then you realize that if the government isn't playing along you're, you're still, you know, you're still bleaching the coral, you're still poisoning the water, you're still contributing to um, plastic waste because you can't drink the water and you have to buy plastic bottles of water um, and they're not recycled. So um, that's, that's my why. That's the why that I'm thinking about is not just why are, they, why are consumers choosing to be this way, but what is it that's making them do this? That's such an excellent point. I I just love that about because I've always had this romanticized vision of Bali, for instance. You know that oh, you could live there in this idyllic place. You know, living this sustainable life. But you're so right. Unless the government and the government has to have money in order to recycle and build the infrastructure that you're talking about. So there, there it comes back to economics again. You know, it's basically still a poor country, and and with what money they do have, they're choosing not to do that. Yeah, absolutely. And then there's also just the the question of corruption and um, and a weak political will to make change. Right. Well, I just you know I love how I love how you weave it all together, and you really don't hold back, Alden, in terms of you know calling us to awareness to confront. Um, the denial that we may want to slip into because we just want to go to a resort. You know, we want to be in a resort. We want to be in a lovely place. And, you know, once again, can we feel so good about ourselves, you know, because we're doing this in a conscious way and um, we're still taking an airplane, right? And flying for hours to get there. You know, I know you're really involved in the fashion industry and I wonder how your message um how your message goes down in that industry. You know, do do you make do you, do you find that people embrace what you're saying or does it cause some people to kind of want to walk the other way? That's a really good question. Um, so far I had I've had some pushback from people in the fashion industry, especially social entrepreneurs. Um, I did give them a shout out in my original article on this subject and I said, you know, if if you want to buy consciously, you are supporting on an individual basis, a conscious entrepreneur. And that's, that's great. But, um, they, uh, and I've actually, I had a conversation with Jason Kibbe who runs the sustainable apparel coalition, which is a consortium of, uh, large 
and medium-sized fashion brands who are actually trying to figure out how to do better um, in, a, in really big ways. Um, and he pushed back and he said that, you know, conscious consumers are the early adopters and um, actually have uh, provide a really valuable role in providing feedback to companies about their efforts to be more sustainable. I don't know if I really believe that because conscious consumers fall in a sort of a sort of valley of understanding where I think everyone goes through the same the same sort of uh, journey of awakening. So first you find out about one thing and you're like that's a terrible thing. Um, slavery and chocolate or uh, pesticides, you know, farmers drinking pesticides to kill, to commit suicide in India. And you get really riled up about that one thing and, and you want to fix it. And so you, you figure out, okay, well, I'm, I'm just not going to buy organic cotton or, or I'm going to buy organic cotton and I'm not going to buy Hershey's chocolate anymore. And then you start to read more and you read more and read more. And then you realize that you, that every decision you make has a huge effect on uh, it doesn't have a huge effect, but every decision you make in your mind is is a moral a moral act. So there's this mm-hmm. you know this saying going around that's saying like every every dollar you spend is a moral act, or every purchasing you, decision you make is a moral act, and and then you get exhausted because when every purchasing decision you make from the car you drive, which is fine because that's pretty exhausting process anyway, all the way down to whether or not you can allow yourself when you are on the go to buy a bag of peanuts because it comes in non-recyclable plastic wrapping, it becomes really exhausting to think of your life in that way. I mean, it's probably not even that exhausting. I, I mean, I'm an atheist, but I imagine it's already pretty exhausting if you adhere to a religion that categorizes things as sinful and not sinful to sort of, to, you know, you have to go to confession every day and talk about what you did that you did wrong. But this is, I mean, if there was a confessional for environmentalists, people would be in there for three hours every day. (laughs) (laughs) Oh my gosh, of course. Right. So, so then you get really exhausted. And at this point you're either, running yourself ragged to keep up with your moral obligations as a a citizen of planet Earth, plus your professional obligations, plus your family obligations and your friend's obligation, obligation not to be a jerk, uh, you know, high-minded jerk to your friends, and eventually you burn out. So, Alden, are you really talking about uh, fighting for systemic change um, while fighting and supporting individual organizations like the one you were mentioning about the, the consortium for um, to hold the fashion industry accountable and make it more sustainable. Uh, while doing that, are you talking about focusing on our energies and our voices on changing systemic things? Like, for instance, are you talking about trying to either get rid of or 
drastically alter capitalism. Uh, that was one of the one of our guests was talking about how if we don't get rid of capitalism, we're going to be dead in 50 years or before 2050, I think it was, um, because of how capitalism, you know, idolizes money and and greed and just rapes the earth. So, would you talk about that angle of it? Sure. Um, so I haven't gotten to the point yet where I think that capitalism should be abolished, probably because it's a huge, scary topic. And so, I, but I will say that it seems to me from looking at what some of the Nordic countries are doing in Europe, um, that you could kind of shove capitalism over closer to socialism, but not all the way and achieve some of these goals. Um, but I, you know, at this point I'm talking about turning, uh, looking at, not even looking at capitalism, but working with what we have right now to, 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 to accomplish what we can. So, um, for example, there's a really good essay by one of the founders of the Humane Society who said that he used to um, be one of the vegans who would stand on the corner with um, a placard uh, telling people that they shouldn't eat meat and sort of screaming at people. And then he came to the realization that, he, first of all, he wasn't changing anyone's mind. And second of all, that trying to get society to all of a sudden not consume or use any animal products seems like a really tall order. So he founded the Humane Society and they've done amazing work. I think both communities have done really done great work because I think the number of people who are vegan is expanding and I'm not vegan, um, but I will definitely eat in a vegan restaurant if it's there. You know, I have no problem doing that. And I think it's great that there's more options, but the Humane Society is also uh, the ones behind uh, behind uh, progress to um, ban gestation crates for pigs, to um, get companies to commit to all going cage-free eggs by a certain time, to strengthening animal protection laws in various states. And so I think both of those processes are really amazing um, and really, really helpful. Are they, gonna, are they going fast enough? Maybe, maybe not. But maybe they would go faster if... Um, if people who care about these issues spent less time um, researching their shopping habits and more time researching which organizations they should be donating their money to and supporting. Right, right. I mean, I think I think that's just a beautiful example. Um, we're we're getting close to the end of the show, and I do want to go back to um, the report that talks about that one of the main underlying problems is just our society's drive to mass consume Mm -hmm. and whether we're looking at do I need to buy another pair of shoes or Helen and I were just having this conversation over the weekend how we want to look at possibly trading in our cars for another car you know to keep challenging ourselves all of us collectively as a human race to say what what is my drive like, why do I think I need to have that, whatever that is? And it can be as simple as, I travel a lot for my business, 
And I'll find myself in a place, an airport or a train station, and I just feel tired and worn out. And all of a sudden, you know, it's like, do I want to veer towards Starbucks? Now, myself, I don't drink coffee, so I might get a kind bar. But really, like in that moment, I feel tired and I feel lonely. And maybe I feel overwhelmed with my job or stressed about my job. But often, I really notice I feel tired and I feel lonely. So I'm reaching for food or we're reaching for the caffeine. And, you know, why do I need another car? I mean, I recently took another job and I'm making some more money. But if I don't buy another car, I will not have a car payment. And my husband won't have a car payment at the end of 2018. And our son will be going to college soon. So it's just perfect timing. But it's my ego. You know, I have new colleagues and I'm literally getting into their Mercedes. And so now I'm like, well, I've got to, you know, I've got to get a new car. So if we can each take on personally the personal challenge to say to ourselves, why do I think I need more? Why do I need to buy that one, one more thing? You know, what is driving me? And, and really, if we had more connection with each other and more even intimacy with ourselves, just learning how to have a quiet time with ourselves and learning how to be more content um, without needing to have a lot of drama or a lot of input, then I think we could begin to take on this problem of mass consumption, you know, because it it really is a problem. And um, again, we're not going to shame people into consuming less. If people are out there buying, you know, including myself, buying, 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 because we have emotional drives and we, we feel lonely, we feel tired, we feel disconnected from each other. And so we're using that to fill up our empty emotional space, then it's never going to change, right? So, uh, Helen, you were going to say something. I want to stop now. Well, uh, the consumerism aspect of it is certainly up, isn't it? I, I think I mentioned this last week on our show with Claire Brown, who is in a, a a Buddhist economist and uh, it was a fascinating show about how we could shift out of consumerism into a much more service related economy and when we talk about that you know consumerism is is the fuel for capitalism mm-hmm. so when we talk about reducing consumerism we have to uh, realize that we're talking about changing capitalism and maybe it'll come as you're saying Alden gradually and we'll shift over towards socialism but I think we have to be willing to take on the whole yes and I know that's what you're talking about we realize that that the little pieces that we're doing are perhaps important because they build the movement but the movement at some point has to change the whole the whole way we look at our economy, not just in terms of sustainability, but how does sustainability relate to capitalism and can we maintain capitalism and have a sustainable economy that cares about everybody and the everybody's got to include the earth. Yeah, and I, I, I would like to hear your thoughts, Helen, about how we consume um, to cover up our feelings of feeling lonely and disconnected. Well, I don't think there's any doubt about that. I, I, I really don't think there's any doubt about it. But I also like what Alden was saying about, you know, there is the emotional aspect and then there's the incentivization. You know, how do we incentivize people to 
to change. We've got to make it feel good. We've got to make it worth their while. We've got to get people into the experience of having a hybrid car or an electric car and see how great it feels. You know, it feels so good to be making a choice that you feel is sustainable. And so I, I think they, they blend together the emotional and the um, whatever kind of incentives you're talking about also, Alden. I think they blend together to work together, which I think is great. You know, that's interesting that you use the, the word choice because um, I'm starting to get to the point where I don't think it should be a choice because when, when it's a choice, then you still have people making the choice that pollutes, right? And, um, you know, I've written a lot about sustainable fashion and um, lately I've been thinking a lot about the choices that fashion companies make that uh, we as consumers don't choose. Um, I was listening to a pitch by uh, the founder of Mycotex, which is um, fabric made from mycelium, uh, from mushrooms. And they, during after the pitch, one of the, um, this is for an investing pitch um, at Fashion for Good in Amsterdam. One of the investors said, well, how are you going to, how are you going to market it? And she says, I'm not going to market it. You don't have to tell people that this is made from mushrooms. It's called Mycotex. Just put it in there. I mean, she was just saying, put it in there like companies have put in polyester or all these other fabrics that we never chose. They, they just, the companies chose for us. Right. And so I don't, I don't think it should be a choice anymore. I think it should be just the way it is. I agree with you. And I, I'm just talking about the transition, really. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. You know, the transition, it's because e- even in order to make it not a choice, everything has to change. Do you understand what I mean? We, yeah. At, at some yeah. level, all the powers that be have to agree to make it not a choice. And that certainly is not what's happening today. So that's where I'm talking about that the emotional, you know, that the the part of the incentive for people to change is that it feels good to do the right thing. Mm-hmm. And hopefully that will take us to where you're talking about. Um, we have four minutes until closing and I want to make sure we talk just for a minute about next week's show. Should I do that now? And then we can come back and kind of summarize. Yes. Thanks, Helen. Okay. Next week, Daryl Davis is going to be with us. And uh, Daryl has been a longtime jazz musician that has played with some of the great names in jazz and also has been on TV and movies. And Daryl could have ended up like so many celebrity musicians and actors focusing on indulging himself and making money above all else, but not Daryl. He decided as a Southern black man to take on the Ku Klux Klan, one member at a time. Join us for his inspiring and courageous story of how he loaned his tour bus to the Klan and invited them into his home. Find out how Daryl's warmth and compassion helped to transform hundreds of KKK members to revoke their memberships. What prompted him to take this action? Can we use his example to help us realize that we can all make a difference? How did he feel facing these men and women who profess to hate his whole ethnic group? What has he learned about himself and humanity in the process? Daryl exemplifies the core principles of the inner revolution, oneness, accountability, and mutual support. And also, watch Daryl's new Netflix documentary, Accidental Courtesy. Call in and join the conversation. And that's what we'll be doing next week. 
or that's right next week on may whatever it is may 4th um alden thank you so much and and I know you've got a lot going on in your life right now and you're about to get married. So it's really, we really appreciate you um, finding time to be on our show. Are there any, are there any last words you'd like to share with the audience? Um, Well, I think the main thing that I hope people get from this conversation is two things. One, it's not your fault. And two, go out and take action, political action. And where can we find you, Alden? Where can our listeners find you? Uh, you can find me at ecocult.com. That's E-C-O-C-U-L-T. Or um, you can find my freelance work at aldenwicker.com. A-L-D-E-N-W-I-C-K-E-R. And Alden, we want to just acknowledge your work is really impactful on so many levels. And I love how you are bringing in the environment, the economy, um, fashion, conscious consumerism, you know, you really are a brilliant woman, and oh, the way you. the way you can weave together all these different issues and think about it on multiple levels is is just fantastic. And I'll be following you. I love reading your blogs, and I'll be interested to see what you're writing in the future. Well, thank you so much for having me. It's been an incredible conversation. And you know, one thing I want to throw in too is you're young, Alden, and you know, I'm 67, Chris is 50 something, and you are the future. And we're so excited to have women like you taking over, holding, carrying the torch, and moving this whole conversation forward. Thank you so much for your energy and for your commitment. We love you and we love what you're doing. Well, thank you so much. It's, you know, thank you for making me think during this conversation. Well, oh, that's welcome. that's what we're here for. Yeah. I'm so glad to hear you. I'm so glad to hear you say that. Right. And we accomplish we accomplish what we set out to do. That's good and for you all may, of us. And you make us think too, Alden. So thank you so much. Yeah. Thank you. Thank you for joining us for this edition of Inner Revolutionary Radio with Beth Green and James Maynard. The next episode will broadcast live next Thursday at 6 p.m. Eastern Time, 3 p.m. Pacific Time on the Voice America Variety Channel. And don't forget Inner Revolutionary TV on voiceamerica.tv. Think outside the box and join us.